everyone. My name is Walter. I'm the teaching and small groups minister here at South. It's good to be with you here today on Time Change. I noticed a few more of you uh, on this Time Change Sunday at the second gathering than the first gathering. I don't know. I'm not making any uh, judgment claims there, but glad you're here anyways. Today is uh, is a good day because we're starting a new series. In the Gospel of John, we are are reading as a church through John uh, this month. 21 chapters, 21 days. We started yesterday. And in the Gospel of John, in the first half of the book, John identifies seven miracles that he calls signs. Signs, are, it's a specific designation in John, and we're going to dig into what that means uh, and, and how those signs reveal Jesus as the Messiah as we read, as we uh, go through these sermons this month. Now, speaking of signs, one of my favorite set of signs in the entire world, and I'm not just talking about Bible, I'm talking about like business signs, road signs, that kind of thing. One of my favorite set of signs in the entire world is the set of signs on the the Mount Pisgah Trail at Holland State Park. If you were one of the, I think, 14 or so cohorts of students that I took to CIY move uh, every summer at Holland State Park, both here and at my previous church, we always got students off campus on Wednesdays, and uh, we would take them up to the top. There's this overlook at the top of this dune, couple hundred stairs. It takes a long time to hike up there. And then once we take the photo, which you can kind of see here, but our projector is really struggling, so bear with us. Um, then we would head off into the woods and, uh, and go hiking. And the thing about the Mount Pisgah Trail is it's not just a trail. It's a, it's a series of trails. They're not super long, but probably a mile or so. And there's different loops, and you can be on different ones at different times and not know it. And there are signs posted. There are signs definitely posted that say, go this way or go that way, and you'll find your way back to the entrance. But it's easy to be on the trail and misread those signs, not understand where you are. And so every year after we climbed up the stairs in the hot sun, and then after I released the students to go hiking in the trails in the woods, every year there would be at least one or two students who would accidentally take the loop twice or would take the real long way around and the rest of the students and I would be happily eating ice cream at Dune Dogs and a couple students would always be wandering out in the woods. Signs are a common part of our lives. They're helpful, but when we don't pay attention to them, we can find ourselves lost, wandering, or confused, or if you were one of those students on a CIY trip I led, you might have found yourself out in the woods while all your friends are happily eating ice cream. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever been driving somewhere and you kept telling yourself, I'm not lost, I'm not lost? Or maybe you told your significant other, your spouse, we're not lost, we're not lost. Anybody been there? Yeah, some of us have. A moment when you didn't pay attention to the signs, you didn't understand them or comprehend them, and you were very much lost. The relief that washes over you in those moments, when you see a sign, you comprehend and understand the sign, it, it's palpable. You, you, you're just, there's a moment of incredible relief and you're thankful that someone took some time out of their day to put up a sign, whether that's a road sign or a sign on a trail or some other sign, a, a sign for a store, whatever it is, it's, 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 uh, it's overwhelmingly good when you see a sign and you know, oh, that's where I'm going. 
life is, is tricky sometimes, and in general, it's hard for us to always make sense of the world around us, reality, and sometimes you might be asking, what's the point, or where should I go, or just wishing that you had some sign from God, this is the step, this is the path you need to be on. Well, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John wrote his gospel, and it's a very theological gospel with a specific stated purpose. At the very end of the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, John says this. He says, Jesus performed many other miracles and wonders, but the ones that he recorded, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the book of John, and so we're going to pay attention to the seven times John uses that word sign, to the seven miracles, and see just what they can tell us about both who Jesus is and about the direction that our life should be headed. So, would you turn with me to John chapter 2 today? John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, and so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. So it's the day after Jesus had called Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, and they're at a wedding, and there's a problem. And, you know, to us in this room today, we're like, wow, that's a problem, but, I mean, really? Couldn't they have just sent somebody out for more wine and then got back and the celebrations could have continued? I mean, that's what we would do today. Running out of wine doesn't feel like some kind of emergency requiring divine intervention, does it? In fact, I think that, this is an aside, but I think that maybe some of our wedding receptions could benefit from us running out of wine a little sooner, perhaps. And so when we see this, when we, when we jump into this miracle, we have to ask ourselves first, what was going on in Jesus' day? Why was this a big deal? And if we do, I think some, some details begin to emerge. First, wedding customs in the ancient Near East were very different than ours today, and some celebrations could go for as long as a week. And there were high expectations placed on all sides of these celebrations. And so if you were a guest, you were expected to provide a a wedding gift of sufficient value to set up this couple for success. And if you were the hosting family, well, then you were expected to provide lavishly for incredible celebrations. And it was actually possible, and this is is mind-blowing to me, it was actually possible in some circumstances for legal action to be taken. If guests didn't live up to their end of the deal, they could be sued by the host family for not providing a significant enough or a valuable enough gift. And if the host family didn't live up to their end of the deal, they could be sued by the wedding guests. And if anybody feels like that's impossibly foreign, that's because it is. The Bible wasn't written to a 21st century mindset. It comes out of a specific culture and a specific time. Now, the truth in here is timeless. And God definitely intended for us to read it and to hear it and to process it. But we have to understand that there's a whole culture behind what is written in this text that is not ours. And so when we approach Scripture, we need to seek first to understand what's going on here and then figure out how to apply it to our lives. 
Now, the, the TLDR version of all of that is running out of wine was a serious offense, and there would be serious repercussions. Enter Mary, Jesus' mother. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Verse 4, dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. At this point in in John's account, Jesus has yet to perform any miracles. And so I'm not really sure what Mary was expecting here. What was her son supposed to do? He and his disciples were just guests at this celebration. But I have to wonder, you know, perhaps Mary thought of the miraculous events surrounding Jesus' birth. As Scripture tells us, Mary treasured these things in her heart. Maybe she was thinking about the time Jesus, as an adolescent, was teaching the teachers in the temple. Maybe she thought about the time the angel showed up and and told Joseph to, to flee with his family, take Jesus and Mary to Egypt. But for whatever reason, something caused Mary to believe that Jesus could act in some way to make a difference. And so she waited with expectancy and And this is what happened. Verse 6, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Jesus decided to act after all. And he did so in a way that it kind of seems to be discreet, right? This was a celebration that was to be all about the, the bride and the groom and their union. And so some miraculous intervention by Jesus could have distracted from the whole thing. And so Jesus chose to use things that were already there, these six jars of water and, and cups. And he had the servants fill them and dip out some water and take it to the master of ceremonies. And then, verse 9 When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called out the bridegroom. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. Now, there's a number of conclusions we can draw out of this text here. First off, Despite the cultural differences, ancient wedding guests were kind of like modern-day wedding guests in that they were prone to imbibing a little too much to the point of not being able to discern the difference between good and bad wine. They'd get toasted. Also, ancient wedding celebrations apparently had a master of ceremonies, kind of perhaps like our DJs, modern-day DJs. Another conclusion that stands out to me is 20 to 30 gallons of water times six jars converted into wine. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. North of 150 gallons of it. But aside from that, I think the most significant thing I see in this episode is that God doesn't do, God doesn't do things halfway. Jesus didn't turn just a little water into a little wine. No, he made a lot of wine. And Jesus didn't make a lot of mediocre wine. He made a lot of the very best wine. 
Because when God does something, when God chooses to act, he does it in the best possible way. Let's finish up this episode here. Verse 11, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus had revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. This episode closes. The next time we pick up the story, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And to be honest, I'm left with a bunch of questions, all of which can be summed up in one word, why? Why did John highlight this miracle? Why was it this one? I mean, right off the bat, you've got the issue of the wine itself. Is it okay that Jesus made a lot of wine for wedding guests who were already a little bit tipsy? Some of us have grown up in church traditions where consuming alcohol was prohibited for any members of Jesus' body. And so this story can make us feel a little squeamish, a little, you know, we start to squirm. And while this passage has nothing to do with whether or not it's okay, for a Christian to have a drink or two, the very fact that that Jesus performed a miracle involving wine can make us uncomfortable. Now beyond that, beyond the issue of the wine itself, is, is the issue of the miracle. I mean, this wasn't a miracle in which Jesus cast out a demon. It wasn't a miracle when he healed someone. It wasn't a miracle when he raised someone from the dead. No, Jesus changed water to wine, why perform this miracle at all? It seems so unlike his other miracles, and in fact, the other, the other gospel writers don't even record this one. And then finally, finally, these two questions in my mind. Why, why was it this miracle that is labeled a sign in John? Verse 11, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee. Why was it this miracle, this one? Because John records some other miracles that he doesn't, doesn't label sign. But this one, he labels sign. And then why? The biggest question I have is why was it this miracle that caused his disciples to believe in Jesus? Why this one? Now dealing with those kinds of questions is, is why I wanted to dig into this text today. Because I'm a, a learner along with all of you. And Scripture continues to fascinate and astound me, and when I come up with questions, when I come against, up against questions like this, man, I want to dig in and see what truth God has for us. And I know right off the bat, at first read of this episode, that, that one of the truths here is that John recognized that this was a miracle with significance, and he labeled it a sign, and beyond that, I've got questions. I've got questions. Here's what I know about signs. And I'm speaking about signs in general, not, not signs in the Bible. Signs in general. A road sign, a trail marker, some other sign, a sign on a storefront on cedar. Signs are placed with purpose. Signs are placed with purpose. If it's a hiking trail, a park ranger noticed this part of the trail is, is difficult to, to follow, and so they, they came out and they posted a sign there pointing you in the right direction. But if a park ranger hasn't been there yet, oftentimes hikers will come along and stack stones beside the trail so that other hikers coming behind them know this is where to go. 
And you can appreciate that kind of thing when you're a hiker because somebody did this. Somebody did this with purpose. They wanted you to know some vital information. You know, if it's a specific shop that you're looking for, maybe the best coffee in town on Michigan Avenue or this great Cuban sandwich shop on Washington, and you're driving around, you might use your GPS, right? You probably use your GPS to get close, but eventually you've got to park the, the car and get out and walk. And it's that sign on the building that lets you know, oh, this is the shop I'm looking for. This is where I'm headed. And then you go in and you're, you fill your belly and it's a good day. We place signs with purpose. They serve as reminders, but they also point the way ahead. And, and I know that God places signs in our lives with purpose too. As you read through the Gospel of John, you're going to encounter these, these seven signs. And, and we're in John, I think, chapter 2 today. So you'll be reading this today as part of the church reading plan. But as you go through the next eight or so chapters, you're going to see six more times when John uses that word sign. And I want you to pay attention to those and see what, what John is talking about. What is he identifying? What is he teaching us about Jesus? Because these seven events, they serve as reminders of what Jesus had done, but they also serve as, as, as signs pointing the way, the way towards Jesus as Savior and Lord of our lives. Now, tradition holds that when, when John wrote these words, it was after the other Gospels had been written, because John was the apostle that we understand to have, have lived the longest, outlasted most of the other ones. And so I wonder, you know, the, the early church, the earliest Christians, they had some accounts of Jesus' life and they had the, the teachings of Paul. And so I wonder, why was it that John chose to write his account? I mean, there were already at least three other accounts. And I have to wonder if by the time John wrote this, maybe the church needed a reminder. They needed a reminder of just who Jesus was and what he had done. You know, I need those kinds of reminders in my life. It's too easy for me to recognize God's work in the moment, but then to forget about it or discount it as, as time kind of dulls the impact of, of what God has done. Many of you know the, some of the stories of, of my family, and man, God has blessed us incredibly. But we face some struggles too, and, and you, you probably prayed for our son when he was a toddler, just coming out of being a toddler, and he was involved in a farm accident at his parents, my parents' farm, and he was unresponsive, had to be hauled by ambulance from one hospital in Coldwater to an ambulance in Kalamazoo, and Jamie and I arrived there in the triage room, and he spoke a word when he, when he was wheeled through the doors. And in that moment, it was as clear to me as it could possibly be that God gave me back my son. I knew that God was working right then. God healed our daughter. As she was approaching her sixth birthday, our youngest child, she had some health concerns. We've been trying to figure out what was going on all summer long. It was kind of strange. But after her sixth birthday, things continued to get worse and worse, and, and many of you were praying for Genesis as well. And, and she had pain, days she couldn't put weight on her legs, and Food was causing all kinds of issues with her and, and, you know, they thought she had some kind of possible arthritis and we took her to the children's hospital in, uh, at the U of M and 
they had her on a, a frightening cocktail of medications for a while, and there were a couple days that I deposited her in a wheelchair as she rode into school because she couldn't walk. But guys, you'd never know that now. She runs around. This morning I had to stop her from running too fast in church. God healed my daughter, and it's as clear to me now as it could possibly be, and yet I know that time will kind of dull that impact. I have personally witnessed God's power in, our, in my family's life, and I bring these things up because it's so easy for me to forget or discount what God is doing. I seem to need constant redirection. I find my heart and my attention wandering. And my two kids, they serve as signs purposefully placed in my life that point me towards my creator. Sometimes you probably need a reminder too. What has God done in your life? When God's people have prayed for you, what have you seen God do? God places signs with purpose. And, and, and if you've seen the impact of God's work in your life, then you need to share with your brothers and sisters because we need that encouragement. If we believe that God is living and active and hears and responds to our prayers, then we are going to have to believe that he does work in our lives. Share those stories. Signs are placed with purpose. You know, this first sign that John records, it was recorded with purpose to demonstrate that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And because of his power, people believed in him. I guess, you know, as the earliest church read this account, they also needed that reminder, a reminder of who Jesus was. So signs are placed with purpose to remind us, and then they're placed to point the way. They help us navigate what's ahead. To the disciples, hearing the Torah and and the writings read in, in their synagogues, They would have been familiar with the pictures of God's coming kingdom out of Isaiah, out of Amos, pictures that included good wine showing up when the kingdom showed up. Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 13, says this, The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested, and the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. And they will plant vineyards and gardens and they will eat their crops and drink their wine. And I will plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Really good wine produced really quickly was a sign that the kingdom of heaven was on its way and the disciples, having their history in the synagogue, listening to the teachers, would have known this. This was in their tradition. This was in their background. And Jesus' miracle here caused the disciples to believe in him. And so over the next few weeks, as we examine a few more of these signs in the Gospel of John, leading up to Easter and what I think is the greatest sign of all, the resurrection of Jesus. As we examine these signs that clearly demonstrate that Jesus is Lord, I hope you'll pay attention. I hope you'll see what God is showing you. I hope that you'll read what the Apostle John wrote because the worst thing I think you can do on any journey is ignore the signs. 
and then fail to arrive at the destination you intended. Your future, your hope, your life need to be placed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, just like the disciples needed to place their hope and their future and their trust in him as well. And these signs in John are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and so that by believing you may have life in his name. As we close today, I, I want to encourage you with this. Let your, life, let your life be a sign to those around you. To those who've never heard of Jesus, like we talked about over the last few weeks, but also to your brothers and sisters here who need to hear what God is doing in your life. And so if God's people have prayed for you as you've been dealing with some sickness, some illness, some other affliction, and you've been healed and God has restored you to our fellowship, man, tell those stories. Tell those stories. If your small group, if your brothers and sisters in Christ have prayed for you as as you've looked for reconciliation in some relationship, friendship, family member, and you've seen God work in that relationship, Tell those stories. God places signs in our life with purpose, and we need to be the ones to tell those stories and remind each other and encourage each other. Signs are placed with purpose, so let your life be a sign to others. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we come to you and we're thankful for thankful for the 12 men that, that Jesus chose to, to follow him and learn from him and for the ways then that their stories have, uh, have been shared with your church. And as John himself chose to write an account of Jesus' life, the, the unique perspective that he has on it. God, I'm, I'm thankful that you inspired him to write this and that Because of that, we can look for and learn from it, look for truth in this gospel. Father, I pray that as we we look at these signs over the next few weeks and as we talk about who Jesus is, that those among us who've yet to place their hope and their faith in Jesus as their Messiah would, would be moved to take that step. And that those of us who are already brothers and sisters in Christ, Father, that we would be encouraged because of what you're doing, but also because of what you've done. Jesus, we're so thankful for your sacrifice for us, and it's in your name that we pray today. Amen. We're going to respond this morning in the way that we we always do respond in worship. And worship can look differently at different times for us here in this moment. Worship looks like us celebrating the Lord's Supper together. It looks like us singing songs of praise to our God. It looks like us giving back, which is a, a, a pattern of worship. And so as we sing, as we, as we join together, I'd encourage you to come join us at the table. And and I do mean join us. Find a significant other. Find a friend. Find someone you don't know and join them at the table. And as you do so, I'd encourage you to to take the bread and, and, and actually say these words. This is Jesus' body broken 
for you and for me. This represents his body. And as you take that juice, this juice represents Jesus' blood poured out for you and for me, reminders of what Jesus has done. Won't you join us in worship? Will you please stand?